Let us prepare our hearts as we pray together. Father, thank you again that you have ordained for us this pattern of one day in seven in which to rest, turn our attention from our work to the one who is always working all around us. Lord Jesus, you you said to us while you were here on earth that you do nothing except what you see the Father do. And the words that you speak are the words that you hear the Father speak. And this is the easy yoke that you gave to us. You said, come to me. for My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come and find rest for your souls. And so we come again as we bring to you our souls that are still partially disordered. Our minds that have been pulled in many different directions by our involvement in the world, most of which does not know you or honor you. Some of our hearts have been wounded. Others of us have wounded others, either knowingly or unknowingly. We have celebrated with joy. We have worked with our hands. We have rested. We have read. And so we trust that all of the things that have happened this past week have been part of your work, your sovereign work in us, preparing us for this moment when we collectively, in this atmosphere of worship and submission to you, having expressed our hunger for you, having said we will wait for you, you have brought us to the point where you will speak to us. And so once again I pray that you will transcend all of those limitations uh, that human speech and human factors both mouths and ears are involved in Father and get past them that you might speak the Lord Jesus Christ that living word from the depths of your heart to the depths of our heart this morning and may we go away changed because of that in Jesus name Amen well over 20 years ago I heard an amusing story that has always stayed with me and I think those of you who have been in this church for any length of time have probably heard me mention it at least once or twice. You can persevere with me for the benefit of those who have not heard it before. Happens to be very pertinent though to where we are headed today. The story is told of a little boy who raised chicken, you know, for his little hobbies out on the farm. But he was thoroughly displeased with the very small size of the eggs that these chickens were laying. And so the neighbors one day saw this little boy walk away to the village market and come back a little while later with a huge big parcel under his arm. And he made his way with this parcel right in the chicken coop and he opened up this parcel and took out a huge big ostrich egg. And he put it right down on the floor and he said to the chickens, now take a good look at that and try harder the next time. (laughs) Now as I said, I have no idea whether that story is true or not, but it happens to be thoroughly biblical. You see, no matter... How loudly this little boy spoke to those chicken. No matter how many times he told them to try harder. And if they could understand and they tried harder. They couldn't do it. Because that's not what they were made to do. They were incapable of obeying that commandment. Now on the other hand if he was raising lazy, if he was raising lazy ostriches. That would be a very different proposition altogether. To come to a lazy ostrich and say take a good look at that. And try harder makes a lot more sense because the ostrich was made to do that and can do it. That's exactly the point that we've come to in our study of the book of Romans. 
We have finished three major sections of the book, chapters 1 to 4, that largely unpack for us the various dimensions of how God sets people right with Him through Jesus Christ. Chapters 5 to 8 talk about the tremendous hope that is ours, where the power of sin has been broken, where the powerlessness of the law has been broken. And then in chapter 9 to 11, we talked about the mystery of Israel's rejection and how God's word has not failed. And so we can still believe and obey and live according to Romans chapter 8 and its glorious promises. And so now in chapter 12, Paul is going to come to a, the practical section of the book. And we are going to find in this section of the book many, many exhortations and commandments. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. But notice the phrase, before he gives any of these commandments, it is in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that I've shared with you in these last 11 chapters. He is going to share these commandments. And exhort them. Basically what that is saying to us at the very outset. Paul is saying when you hear all of these commandments. They are not being given to hens. They are being given to ostriches. You are no longer a hen. You are an ostrich. You have been taken out of Adam. Where death and sin reign. And you are now firmly in the community of Christ. Where grace reigns in life. Or life reigns. Through grace. God has sent his spirit into your heart. So that what the law could not do. He is doing and able to do. Therefore, because you can become like Jesus Christ, I am asking you to become like Him and live like Him. So Paul wants to set that very clear and set the context for all of the commandments that are going to come now from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 10. Now we are reaching the how should we then live part of Romans. But we should live this way because Paul says you can live this way and you were made to live this way. So he wants to get that part right. And the very first thing he says to us is, I want to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now the whole Old Testament sacrificial background against which early Christianity found its roots knew all about sacrifices, but they were dead sacrifices. The animals had to be killed. And in that death, they symbolically underlined for them several truths. The fact that sin meant death, the fact that God was willing to accept the death of a substitute, and that he wanted wholehearted and complete dedication of ourselves to him. These things were symbolically acted out and underlined every time these dead sacrifices were made, or these sacrifices were killed. Paul says all that's finished because Jesus died on the cross. Once and for all the sacrifice was made. You don't need to kill any more animals. You need to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, he said, the sacrifice that Christians are called to make is what we do with these bodies. As we learned when we looked through Romans chapter 6, these bodily instruments, our hands, our eyes, our mouth, our feet, these are the things through which and by which the things in our hearts and our mind are given expression to. This is how we interact with the outside world and, and live out what is inside of us. And by asking us to present these bodies as living sacrifices and calling this our spiritual worship or our new kind of worship, Paul is underlining for us the fact that all of life becomes worship. For the Christian. It's not just what happens in these 90 minutes every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. It's how you live in the home. It's how you live in your neighborhood. It's how you live at work. It's how you drive on the highway. Because every one of those things involves our hands, our feet and our eyes, he said. And he said they are all to be holy. And the word holy basically here means set apart for God's purposes. That's what makes it worship. In other words, Paul is saying, you need to now see everything that you do in all of life. All the time, everywhere, as having one overarching purpose, bringing glory to God and advancing His purposes. It's totally and completely comprehensive, 
the New Testament understanding of worship. This is a fundamental exhortation. Now, what is needed for this to happen? How will this happen? In order for us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, in order for us to be able to see what we do in our home, in our church, in our neighborhood, and at work, as all worship set apart for the glory of God, Paul says two things have to happen. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's something we shouldn't do, and there's something we should do if we are going to live this way where all of life becomes worship. First of all, what we shouldn't do. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. That, the word that is translated pattern is the same word from which we get words like schemes or strategies. Every culture, ha- or other word, fashions, if you will. Every culture has its own fashions and patterns and its ways of thinking that are regularly communicated to us. And the basic message is, if you want to be with the in crowd, if you want to be up to date, if you want to be hip, cool, if you don't want to be called archaic, outmoded, old-fashioned, irrelevant, then you need to think this way and live this way. That is a relentless message of every culture that is around us. And this message is communicated primarily through media in this society that we live in. Through television, through movies, through the advertising industry. And it comes through peer pressure. It comes through peer pressure at work, through peer pressure in the neighborhood, through peer pressure in school and the universities and the lecture halls. There's a relentless pressure to conform, to be shaped. Now what Paul says is, hey guys, you're ostriches, you're not hens. You're not passive victims to this pressure. You can say no to it. And you should say no to it. Some of you have seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, story of a brilliant uh, mathematician, the Nobel laureate John Forbes Nash. And uh, he, he suffered from schizophrenia, an acute form of schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia. As the movie continues, he reaches a point where the medications that he's been taking him has, has reduced him to a point where he's unable to think through math problems. He's not able to have a proper uh, relationship of intimacy with his wife and with his son. And so he just determines to get off all medications and use his magnificent intellect to think his way through the problem. And so as he continues to think that way with the help of his wife and others, he slowly gets to the point where he begins to teach again at Princeton University. And at one point, one of the delegates from the Nobel Committee comes to see him. Let me get a hold of it so I can give you the exact words. He comes to see him uh, to see and assess his mental state if he would be suitable to get the Nobel uh, Prize. And tongue-in-cheek, Nash says to King, I am still crazy. Then more soberly he says this, I take the newer medications, but I still see things that are not there. I just choose not to acknowledge them. Like a diet of the mind, I just choose not to indulge certain appetites. Like a diet of the mind, I choose not to indulge in certain appetites. That's a beautiful way of saying what Paul is exhorting to us. This culture is relentlessly serving up to us a diet for our minds to think in certain ways and therefore to act in certain ways. And like he still saw the delusions, we as Christians see these things very clearly. But we are able to say no to this diet of the mind that is offered to us from the culture. Paul says you've been unable to do it, so do it. Look at it in the face. Recognize it's there. And it's going to come at you all the time. If all of life is going to be worshipped, we're going to have to learn to worship God in the midst of this diet of the mind that we are continually being offered to through these channels. 
And so there's a continual, repeated time of saying no, no, no to this. This is a critical negative component if we are ever going to offer our bodies as living sacrifices so all of life can become worship. Now that's the negative side. But there's a positive side too because just like in, in, uh, with our bodies, it's not enough just to avoid junk food. If we only avoided junk food, that's not enough. We're going to have to eat wholesome food too. Therefore, Paul talks about the positive side. He said, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. There's another kind of diet as well, which comes from God's word. Why are we memorizing Romans chapter 8? It's part of the diet of the mind. So that we are able to say what the law could not do. Because it was powerless. God has done through Jesus Christ. So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So that we can say, looking at the sufferings of this world, I reckon that this present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So that we can look at perplexing circumstances and say, for in all things God works for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. For those whom He predestined, He foreknew. Those whom He foreknew, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. So we can say, I am more than conquered through all these things. For I am persuaded that nothing will separate me from the love of God who is in Jesus Christ. It is so that we can be able to respond that way that we are memorizing Romans 8. Why do we come and listen to sermons? Why do we pick up the study guide and work our way through them at least one time during the week? Why do we learn to sing songs that encapsulate truth in powerful poetry and set them to rousing music and play them to the encouragement of instruments? Why, why, why? In every case so that we can say yes to a different diet of the mind and be transformed. Now Paul gives us a motive for this too. He says, then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. If you do these two things, say no to this diet of the mind that is coming from culture, its ways of thinking, its patterns, and say yes to the diet of the mind that comes from the word of God that reveals the mind of God. Then he says, you will, something will begin to happen. You will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Now how does this work? That, word, that phrase that is translated test and approve comes from a single word in the Greek language. It was used of people who would test, for example, documents to see if they were original documents. And they put a seal on it and stamp it. The word carried that meaning as certified as original. It was used of people who would test precious metal ore and, and certify it. It carried the idea of testing something to see if it was genuine, finding it genuine and then putting your mark of approval upon it and saying, yes, this is good. Now, how does that work? What Paul is saying is, just because you are no longer hens but ostriches doesn't mean you're going to lay the egg you know how to. See, just because there are certain things we can do now because we are in Christ, doesn't mean we'll do them and appreciate them until... We actually get involved in the process. A few weeks ago when we came back from Indonesia, those of you who were here heard Sham share her testimony of what God did for her. It's, it came back to my mind as I was thinking about this. Uh, for, those, for those who were not here, let me just remind you, she talked about her, her fear of flying uh, and how going halfway around the world and flying for 24 hours would have been an excruciating experience and how the, the temptation was to, to not do it. I don't need to do it. That's the, that's, there's a diet of the mind that comes from the culture that says you don't have to do what you don't feel like doing. You can find other ways around. You can rationalize your way around it. 
But then she began to say yes to the diet of the mind that comes from the word of God. And she shared with you how for several weeks as she continued to read God's word, slowly he began to give her a counter perspective to the cultural perspective that was around. And as a result of that, she did it. She still didn't approve it, didn't think it was good and pleasing and perfect, but she did it. Now, when she did it and got all the way there and then began to reflect upon all the things that had happened, then God took her the next few steps and said, not only did I do what I could do, I now think it is good and pleasing and perfect. And the word perfect means that for which I have been made. And guess what? I'm going back again. You see the process? It was a perfect illustration of what Paul is talking about here. You can do something, but it doesn't mean you will do it because there's the pressure of culture. But when you begin to say no to the diet of the mind that comes from culture and say yes to the diet of the mind that comes from the word of God, you will then begin to do what you can do. Once you do what you can do, then you are in a position to evaluate it. And then God says, believe me, you will say it is good, pleasing and perfect and then you'll keep on doing it. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's how this thing gets translated into practice. That is the summary of the whole Christian life. That's why Romans 1, 12, 1 and 2 are so critical. By the way, the reason it is so important to get to the end, to be able to say it is a good, pleasing and perfect will, is that unless that happens, you are not worshipping God. Mere external conformity to God's commandments is not worship. You know why? Because you could be doing all of those and wishing, boy, I'm sure. You know, imagine me preaching here today and saying, I just can't wait for these three services to be over so I can do what I really enjoy doing. Do you think God is pleased then with his worship? Of course not. Mere external conformity. That's why Paul takes 11 chapters before he gets to the commandments. It is only when we can say this is good, this is pleasing, I approve that this is genuine and valuable, it becomes worship. And this is the way we get to that point. Now what Paul does in the rest of chapter 12 is spell out two specific examples of what a mind that is renewed into the mind of Christ looks like. So in verses 3 to 8 he says this, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Paul says there are several dimensions in the body, life of the body, that show what a renewed mind is. Thinks like and acts like. First of all, it thinks about itself with sober judgment. It doesn't think of itself too highly. In other words, when it comes to our gifts, our abilities, our talents and our skills, we don't think too exaltedly about our own abilities. It also doesn't mean we pretend we don't have them, which is the opposite problem, which by the way is usually another manifestation of pride, only twisted. The the mind that is like Christ thinks accurately about itself and accurately about other people. Therefore, humility, which, and th- which is thinking accurately, is one of the marks of a renewed mind. 
Secondly, he says, in this body, that in the body there are many members, they are all part of the same body, and all the members do not have the same function. Therefore, unity out of diversity is a second component of sane thinking. Sane Christ-like thinking in the body begins with a humble estimate of ourselves, and humble means accurate, not low or high, and of others, and then it also embraces this beautiful thing that God has created called diverse unity out of diversity. We are committed to the unity of the body and we recognize the diverse elements that there are in the body. And then fourthly, it says, this mindset also recognizes that the members belong to one another. And Paul amplifies what that means by saying, if you have these gifts, use it. <laughs> Which then means a mind that is renewed like Christ also serves. We make a right estimate of ourselves and we make a right estimate of others. We are committed to preserving the unity in the body of Christ. We recognize and treasure the diversity that is in the body and we use our gifts to serve others so they can become more like Jesus and we receive what they have to give to us so we can become more like Jesus. This is the mark of the first mark Paul chooses of a community of people who are becoming more and more like Jesus. Not surprising when Jesus said the son of man came to what? Not to be served. He came to serve. So the service out of a humble mind in a body that is unified out of diversity is the first mark of Christ-like living. Now, its relevance to the Roman church is obvious. I've reminded you last week as well that after five years of having no Jewish Christians in the church, they were now coming back and there was a great temptation for people to get it wrong in this area. And so Paul reminds them of every one of those things. Unity, diversity, appropriate, humble thinking of yourself and serving one another. But what about us? Here, we're all Gentiles. How does this apply to us? There are many ways, but there's one that I think is particularly pertinent to where we are as a body. That's why there are, there are sometimes pastors can preach the word of God in a way that outside speakers cannot, because we know our congregations and we know our own hearts. You know, in this, the point that I want to remind you of, out of all of this, to apply to us where we are today, is brothers and sisters, you all, if you're a believer, you've got a spiritual gift, you need to get a right handle upon it, and you need to start using it to bless this body. In, in, you know, we have the classes. You know, first base, second base, third, third base is where we find out what our spiritual gifts are. And I have observed that the sharpest drop-off and attrition comes between second base and third base. So we're all happy to find out that we belong to the body of Christ. We're all happy to learn a little bit more what it's like to follow after Christ. But as soon as it looks like we're going to have to start doing something, many of us seem to back off. And those who sign up for third base very seldom follow through with the suggestions that are given afterwards to have consultations, to find out more about the gifts, to maybe attend a, a module and then get involved. I want to exhort you. Your gifts belong to the rest of the body. Isn't it interesting that Paul chooses this as the first illustration of what it is like to be like Jesus? Let me illustrate this another way. You know, our brother John was leading us and his right hand was playing the guitar. Just imagine one day John's right arm said to him, Hey John, I just love being your right arm and I love playing this guitar. I just can't stand the rest of you. So why don't you just kind of lop me off and leave me in the corner with my guitar so I can happily play my guitar and then you can do what you want. I won't have to listen to you speak or sing or anything. I mean, no, it's ridiculous. You know what will happen. That arm will shrivel up and it can't play any guitar anymore and John will be disadvantaged. 
An arm is only an arm when it is organically connected to the rest of the body, receiving orders from the same head with the same blood running through it that runs through the rest of the body. Then it can both play the guitar and help the rest of John. Exactly the same thing is true in the Christian life. To be a Christian means to be organically, or realize that you are organically connected to the rest of the body, taking orders from the same head who is Jesus Christ, and then happily doing your part and receiving other people doing their part. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so Paul underlines that for us and says this is the first expression. And by the way, like every other aspect of worship, it is ultimately for our good. As I have repeatedly emphasized to you, worship is never because God needs something or somehow he will be deprived or diminished when we don't worship. Only one person gets diminished if we don't worship. That's us. And so when we don't serve God in this way and offer our bodies the living sacrifices, he doesn't get diminished. We do. So when he's asking us to be servants in this way, it is ultimately for our good, not for his good. And when I think back upon my own life, you know, I, was, I became a Christian when I was 17 years old, about 43 years ago. Within a few weeks, I knew what I wanted to do. And I, I didn't hear any sermon. No one was speaking about spiritual gifts and all those things. I started teaching the Bible and I decided I liked it. Just like I did the will of God and discovered it was a good, pleasing and a perfect will of God. I can't take any credit for it. I didn't know all of these things. It just happened that way. And I've been doing it for 43 years. And you know what? Whenever I retire... Whenever you get tired of me, whenever, and when someone stops paying me for doing all of this, I'm not going to stop reading the Bible. I'm not going to stop studying it. And if so long as somebody is there to listen, I'm not going to stop preaching. Why? Because this is, it has become for me something that makes me alive. You know, when we say no to the schemes of the world, it feels like we are dying. It feels, because that's what they tell us. You're getting old, you're getting out, outmoded, you're getting irrelevant. You're not with it, you're not hip, you're not cool. You're dying, you're leaving us behind. Everybody's passing you by in the fast lane. It feels like dying. God says, don't believe it because this is how you live. When you serve in this way, you will become more alive than you've ever been before. Okay, what is the second expression of a renewed mind? The first expression is humility, unity, diversity, and then service through our gifts, because ultimately we are blessed. Here's the second expression of a renewed mind. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's, God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals over his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, at first sight, when you read through it, it's like a floodgate, you know. Compared to the previous section, which was, not, you know, it only dealt with one topic about this business of serving in the body. It was logical, it was connected, there were conjunctions that joined the verses together. There was a progression in Paul's thought. 
Now here all of a sudden we get a rapid fire, 31 different commandments and exhortations. <laughs> different in style completely. Only nine of them in the original language are in the form of imperatives. Others are participles and just descriptive uh, words. There's no single clearly defined unifying theme or clear focus. Except in all probability these are intended to be understood as various expressions of those opening words. Love one another sincerely. So if the first expression of a mind that is being transformed into the image of Christ is humble service to the body of Christ. The second expression is sincere love. And as people like to say, it isn't rocket science. Like, what don't you understand about honor one another? How many sermons do you need to practice hospitality? In our bulletin, there's a place where two people need short-term places to live. A Christian worker is coming from Egypt, needs a place to stay for five days. Christians are told to practice hospitality. How many sermons do you need for that? Live in harmony with one another. Be faithful in prayer. We, are, these are, we understand that. These are 31 different eggs we can lay. Going back to our original analogy. And guess what? We can do it all. Unlike the previous section where different people had different gifts, this one, every Christian is intended to do all of these things. To a greater or lesser degree, according to the proportion of our faith. So in the study guide, I've given you some exercises to work your way through this. But what I want to focus on, though, is one particular one where Paul gives this, in, in, in so many rapid-fire commandments, there is one particular connected set that he gives a lot more time to hear. And when you take a look at it, you will see why. Because there is nothing else other than this one area that is the most sh- sharpest contrast between the patterns of the world and the pattern of Christ. There is nothing that is more Christ-like than this particular thing. And that is to deal with the issue of how we deal with our enemies. How we deal with people who have hurt us. Because it is there that there is the starkest contrast between the mindset of the world and mindset of Jesus. It is the one commandment that is most like Christ and the hardest thing for us to pull off. So let me just kind of walk us through that. Do not repay... Well, we have read that. Let me just go. We are most like Christ when first of all he says, don't repay evil for evil and don't take revenge. By the way, those two things look like the same, but there's a very subtle difference between the two. Don't repay evil for evil just says, don't do what they did to you. So if their dog dirties my front yard, I'm going to make sure my dog dirties your front yard. That's giving evil back for evil. And what's the difference between that and revenge? People who are just giving evil back for evil know what they're doing is evil and they call it evil. They don't care. They just want to make sure the other person gets what they got. Revenge is a lot cuter than that. Revenge goes one step further, but it, it does the same thing. But it covers up that evil by calling it good. Usually they will couch it in terms of justice and righteousness. That person needs to learn a lesson. Somebody has to teach them that we shouldn't do these things. What about my rights? Those are the kinds of questions that will come. We'll do exactly the same thing. But we will couch it in this language of good and right. And therefore now it becomes... uh, That's why revenge has that moral cloak to it as well. This is the problem in the whole Middle East. Both sides completely believe that what they're doing is right, what the other person is doing wrong, and somebody has to teach them a lesson. And they're not going to take the first step to stop it. Somebody else has to do something first. One man put it this way, revenge keeps evil in circulation. Continues to keep it going. I was just gripped by that word. So that's the first thing. He said, don't give evil for evil, and don't couch it. Because if justice is what you really want, 
You know what? No, actually, you should be happy because there is somebody who loves justice far more than you do. And that's God. So if justice is what you really, really, really want, then don't worry. Leave room for God's wrath. He'll do a much better job than you can do. And that verse flushes out the cover-up that is involved in revenge. Because though we say we are interested in justice, it is more retribution and retaliation that we are often interested in. If we really wanted justice, he says, leave it to God. But you know why we don't want to do that? Because this God that we serve has this annoying habit of being merciful rather than just. He ends up treating these people well. Of course, we forget that that's exactly how he treated us. So we don't want to leave room for God's wrath. What if he doesn't show... That's exactly what Jonah's problem. Jonah didn't want to preach the gospel. Why? He said, I know what kind of a God you are. You're a merciful God. You'll forgive the whole lot. And so we don't want to uh, leave room for God's wrath. But he says, do it. Do it. Instead, he says, bless and do not curse those who persecute you. Now, we, of course, have no power to either bless or to curse. So really, this is what, this is what we do in our prayer. That's why Jesus said, bless and do not curse. Pray for those who despitefully use you. In other words, what he's saying is, leave room for God's wrath. And you, precisely because you know your God is a merciful God, pray what is good for them. Now, blessing doesn't automatically mean make life easy for them. It just simply means do what is good for them. And Lord, you know what is good for them. If discipline is good for them, you will give it. If, if mercy is what they need, you'll give mercy. But pray that you'll bless them and do not pray that harm will come to them. Just the kind of harm that you want to come to them. So, bless and do not curse. And one of the specific ways he says to bless them is to uh, give food and drink to your enemy if he's hungry and thirsty. And then he says, in this way, you will heap coals of fire upon the head. That's a notoriously difficult phrase to translate, but the most likely meaning of that phrase in this context is simply this. You're giving them good for evil is likely more than any other single thing you can do to lead them to remorse and to repentance. No guarantees, but likely lead you. Uh, and uh, let me give you a couple of examples. A few weeks ago when Norm Duke was speaking here, he talked about how at the World Cup they had prepared a lot of resources and videos and whatnot to distribute. He told me uh, a week before he left, I said, have you heard anything back? He said, well, I did hear one very important story, interesting story. An, an, an Egyptian Christian had been distributing these things there when a Saudi national came to him, asked him, are you a Christian? And when he discovered that he was, he slapped him. What this Egyptian Christian did was simply turn the other cheek. The Saudi national walked away and the next day he came back to the same place and asked another Christian from whom he got the story, where is that man that was distributing this stuff yesterday? I want to see him. Because he said, he practices his faith like we don't. There's returning good for evil. By the way, this, in, this principle of Jesus is so powerful that it even works in what we might call non-Christian or irreligious settings. Those of you who have had the misfortune like me of trying to be a follower of the Boston Red Sox for 30 or 40 years... Uh, will remember a man named Wade Boggs. And Boggs used to be the third baseman. And when he, he didn't, uh, he always got into trouble when he went to Yankee Stadium. Not because of the players. He could handle that properly. But there was this fan who had a box seat right next to the uh, state where Boggs would warm up and play left field, I think it was. And he would continue to uh, harangue this person. His stated intention was to get under Boggs' skin. And so one time he was out there, he had started his pre-game warm-up, and this fan went into it and started calling him all kinds of names and obscenities and stuff like that. Well, Boggs walked up to him and said, Hey, are you the guy that keeps shouting at me? And in typical Yankee fashion, the fan said, I should say Yankee fan fashion, the guy said, Yeah, it's me, what are you going to do about it? 
Boggs reached into his pocket, picked out a brand new baseball, autographed it and tossed it to the guy. I walked away. From that time on, not only did this man stop heckling him, he became his greatest fan. And if you're going to be a Red Sox fan at Yankee Stadium, that's living dangerously. You know. <laughs> but that's how this thing works. That's how this thing works. You don't bless and do not curse. Uh, bless them and do good to them. Heap coals of uh, fire on their heads. Now, you can do all of these things and there's no guarantee that the other person is going to change or respond in any way. So, this is not a call to make peace at any price. For Paul also adds these words, as far as it depends on us, we will live at peace with everyone. Christ was not at peace with everyone. All kinds of people that were mad at him. Primarily the religious leaders. So, don't repay evil for evil. Leave room for God's wrath. Bless and do not curse. Do good when you can. And as far as it depends on you, live at peace. But it's possible that there are some things that don't depend on you and there's nothing you can do about it. Then don't make it your goal. To heal that relationship. You can only do what depends upon you yourself. Now he sums it up in the last phase. Make sure that you are not overcome by evil. But you overcome evil with good. Now why does he add that? You see if you refuse to live like this. If you refuse to live the way Jesus is telling us to. Or Paul is spelling out for us. You have only one other alternative. And that is you are going to be overcome by evil. You are going to be like the evil that you are resisting. There is an inviolable principle of human behavior and consequence that God seems to have built into the fabric of human life that we become like our emotional focus. If you hate the people and not the evil, you will become like the people that you hate and you will become evil yourself. And you will therefore allow evil to overcome the good. Paul says don't do it. See, ultimately this is for our good. Like everything else. Worshipping God in this way is still for our good. On the other hand, on the other hand, he says, if you instead overcome evil by good, which of course is exactly what Jesus did, right? He took the greatest evil that was done. The crucifixion of a completely innocent man, the only innocent man that's ever lived, which is what the first 11 chapters of Romans were all about. And because of that, because of that, incredible good, redemptive good has come to the whole world, which is why today, 2,000 years later, we've got seven people going to Malawi, we've got somebody else going to Sudan, we've got somebody else going to Tajikistan, we've got someone else going back to Turkey. 2,000 years later, the good is still flowing from that one act. And so he said, if you're going to be like Jesus, that's the invitation that we have. To not allow yourself to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Let me close with this story that kind of wraps up everything from this section, then we'll move to our communion. This was told by a pastor. Some time ago, I was having lunch at McDonald's with my daughter and mother-in-law. We were enjoying a pleasant conversation when a man with his wife and children plopped down at the nearby table. The man was someone who in the past had hurt me. We faked pleasantries and exchanged hellos. There's the insincere love. The word love, let love be sincere. The word sincere means without masks. Uh, faking pleasantries is putting the masks on. So that's where he started, at the opposite of verse 9. But I could feel my blood begin to boil at the thought of what he had done to me. Evil was beginning to overcome him again. This person had wounded me badly and I was surprised about how much, I, how much hurt I still felt. My family and I gobbled on our food. So gone was the legitimate pleasure of even enjoying their meal. Evil was continuing to overcome him. And on the way out of the restaurant, I overheard my enemy and his wife arguing because neither had any money to purchase the food they had ordered. Their three kids were screaming for their happy meals. The couple was embarrassed. My first thought was, praise God, there is justice in this world. That's curse and do not bless. He deserves every bit of embarrassment. There's revenge, evil being couched up. 
And I'm so glad I got to see this. Suddenly God spoke to me through the text. There was the diet of the mind coming from the cultural patterns around him. And now all of a sudden a different diet of the mind coming to his mind. God spoke to me through the text I had read that morning. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something. This stuff is absolutely current. God was saying to me, here's your chance to be set free of your pain and overcome your hurt. Here's your chance to overcome evil with good. I knew I had a choice. There it is. He was an ostrich. He could lay the egg, but he could choose not to. Somewhat reluctantly, doesn't matter. You begin that way and then you will affirm it is good and perfect. Somewhat reluctantly, I reached into my wallet, pulled out $20, gave it to this man who had been my enemy. Have lunch on me, I said. And then the tears began to flow. Now he knew it was good and perfect. There's no better illustration than this entire sermon. Here's my question. What if he hadn't read that morning? What if he had not read that morning? There would be no diet, an alternative diet to give. And he would have still been a prisoner to the diet of the mind and would have conformed to the patterns of this world. We're coming to this time now where we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And you know, this morning as I was praying for the service, it struck me that this act, perfectly captures for us these two expressions of the renewed mind that we've talked about. First of all, it reminds us that we are one body. Which was the subject of his first illustration of a renewed mind. We are all one body. We need to serve one another through our gifts by with a humble assessment of our own abilities and others' abilities. That we are only an arm if we are joined to the rest of the body. So that's one reminder. And those of you who, for whatever reasons known only to yourself, have chosen to not be contributing members of this body through these gifts, you may need to ask yourself that question. But this is the Christ that I serve. We are part of one body. Secondly, this is of course an unbelievable demonstration of the most supreme act of overcoming evil by good. He allowed his body to be broken. And he gives it to you and to me. And so for some of you who may be in that situation, where there are people that have hurt you, you may need to ask yourself, where in, that step, in those steps have I missed something? What do I need to add? As much as in me is possible. You might even be on the other side of that equation. You might be somebody who has actually hurt someone else. And you may know it. In which case, you can take the initiative. If you don't know it, then again, there is nothing to do until God brings that to your attention. But you can be ready to respond appropriately. So as those who are helping me serve the communion come to the front right now as the worship team takes its place, I want us to be quiet and examine our hearts. Uh, The invitation. The invitation is to live like Jesus because we now can live like Him. In these two very concrete representations. To serve one another in the body and to overcome evil with good. You know, benedictions come from strange sources sometimes for me. This past week it came from the leader of Hezbollah. Here's what he said. He said, you cannot destroy Hezbollah because the resistance is not a classic army or a regular state. The resistance is a people who has the belief, the will, and who loves martyrdom. 
When I read it, there was a chill went through my heart because he's absolutely right. But that's what God's people are to be like. Our enemy is not people. We are called to resist the enemy. But will we be a people who have a belief and a will and who love to be living sacrifices? Living sacrifices are not easier than martyrdom, you know. So that's what I want to bless you with. I want to first of all bless you with, with, with a growing and an increasing sense that you are a people. You're not just individuals. You are a people. And may you learn to love the fact that you are a people and not just individuals. Secondly, may He bless you with a strong faith in who Jesus says He is, the risen Lord of the universe. May you increasingly test and approve that good, pleasing and perfect will of God. And become a people with His will. And may He increasingly fall in love with being living sacrifices. Then we will not be a conquered people. Then we will be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Go in Jesus' name.